like you to turn to 1 John chapter 5. I, I, I've sent a couple of emails out about what the passage is going to be um, and finally decided that we're just going to cover the whole chapter, but not today. We're going to cover half of it today, but I'm going to read the whole chapter for you. 1 John chapter 5. For you people that are tuning in, you can't hear us or see us, but thank you. <laughs> Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves a father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who's been of God, born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There's sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. The word of God, brothers and sisters. You ever go to social media and they have those tests? You know, how old is your brain? Uh, the, uh, what, what type of tree would you be if you were a tree? And you take these tests and they run five or ten minutes or so, and then you get this little placard that comes and says, oh, you're an oak tree, or, you know, your brain's eight months old or something. That's, that's how mine usually turn out. The, uh, uh, th those are a lot of fun, aren't they? Uh, I, I don't know that I'd want to uh, form my life philosophy based on those tests, but, they're, they're, you know, we, we kind of like that stuff. 
Now, the question I got for you this morning is, what if there was a test to determine your eternal destiny? What if it was short and concise, and when you were done, if you got all the right answers, you would get a little placard you could put on your Facebook page saying, I will live forever. We're going to try and answer that question this morning. Last time we got together, we talked about love, and what we said about love is it ain't easy. Because love that we're talking about is godly love, God, a love that originates with the lover with no regard for the value or worth of the beloved. We need to think about that. We need to soak in that for a bit. What, what does that mean? Well, you know, in, in some cases, it means that we didn't get saved because God needed us in heaven. We didn't get saved because we joined the choir or the worship team or we worked with children's ministry. We didn't get saved because we have some talent or capability that God needs in his church. And we didn't get saved because we figured out the gospel a little bit better than the guy next to us did. We were saved by God because he's God. And for no other reason, we are the product of God demonstrating his glory to the world and doing that by regenerating us, by giving us new life, by making us into new creatures, by molding us and shaping us into his likeness. This is a godly love, a godly love that proceeds uh, from the, the lover, not with regard to the beloved, but because the lover is a lover. And now that we're saved... Well, God commands us to love. Commands? Commands us to love? What, what is that? I, I thought, John, I thought love was a feeling. How can God command us to have a feeling? What if we don't have warm fuzzies about the people we're being called to love? What if we don't have tingling in our tummies uh, about the people around us? See, this is the ain't easy part. This is the ain't easy part. How do we do this? Let me talk to you for just a second, just to give you some perspective about marriage in the Old Testament. You know, they were arranged. So, you know, a young man would have his eye on a young lady. Maybe, maybe the fathers got together and had a discussion and the father would take the son across town. They'd sit in front of the father of the young woman, and they'd say, okay, we're going to give you some cows and some chickens. And they'd go, okay, we'll do this. The betrothal would, would occur, and then for a year, the young man would go prepare a place for his bride. You know, this is an exact mirror of Jesus saying he would prepare a place for us. We'd betrothed to us. And so then a year later, there would be a celebration. There would be a consummation of the relationship. And we look at that, and we go, oh, how barbaric. How terrible that is. And we think that somehow there's no love in that relationship, don't we? Yet the testimony we see in the Old Testament, I mean, Abram and Sarai were together for 70-some years before anything happened in their lives. And she was barren. Now, this is, this is a curse as far as the Jews are concerned. They think that Abram or Sarai, one of them have done something wrong and God is now 
now uh, disciplining them over what they've done wrong, and, and they, they stuck together. There was the incredible cultural pressure against them. Matter of fact, in some of those cultures, Abram had reason to have Sarai stoned. But they stuck together. And we see that over and over again in the, in the fathers of the faith, troubled relationships, and they remain committed to each other. How did that happen? And were there any feelings? Of course there were feelings. You don't stay together for 70 years without having some commitment to each other. Somebody say amen. Thank you. They worked at it. They worked at it. Anybody that's been together for a long time knows that those warm fuzzies kind of get you through the honeymoon, and that's about it. And at some point, you know, I, I think I've told you before, when I do premarital counseling, um, we spend most of our talk, time talking about the moment the honeymoon ends. What do we do now? Now we've got a lifetime of living together. We've got a lifetime of having to work together. I'm, I'm living with this strange person that has strange habits, and they're looking at me like I have strange habits. And, and so you, you have to work at it. We know the warm fuzzies will get us through the honeymoon, but the hard and rewarding work of marriage begins at the end of the honeymoon. Same thing with loving others. It's the same thing. It's hard work, but it has eternal rewards. And for believers, the great news is that we have help. The Holy Spirit. John uses a curious phrase in describing believers in these passages. He calls them born of God. And we're going to talk about that in a little minute, but we've seen it before. It's in chapter 3, verse 9. It'll be again in, uh, it was again in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 7. What is that? What does it mean? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit comes to those who are born of God? I'll get to the meaning in just a few minutes, but it's crucial for us to understand that phrase because it's endemic to John's message here. When we understand it, we can then test ourselves to see if we're saved. Now, that sound like good news? Some of you are going, well, I don't need to test myself. I don't need that. That's fine. That's fine, okay? But there is a test. And so our sermon today is testing our salvation. This is part one. We'll do part two next week. To help us, John gives us four tests in chapter five. The test number one is believing we're born again in verses one through five. And test number two is believing that Christ is the Son of God. That's part one. Test number two is part one of two tests. That's in verses six through eight. Then part two of that is believing Christ is the Son of God in verses nine through 15. And then test number four is believing we're free of sin in 16 through 21. This morning, we're going to look at tests one and two. So let's take a look at believing we are born again, starting with verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, the first thing we see is this. If you believe Jesus is the Christ, wait a minute, the Christ? I thought that was his name. And if you would look on Jesus' heavenly license, driver's license, it would not say first name Jesus, last name Christ. Jesus is his given name. Christ is his office. He's the Messiah. 
The same words were used in the Old Testament to denote someone who's anointed with holy oil. Mainly what they talk about is the high priests. The gospel uses the term to describe the highest of all high priests, Jesus the Christ. So if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah and everything that comes along with that designation, he's the savior of mankind, he's the redeemer, he is the king of kings, he is the Lord of lords, then you are born of God. Well, what does that mean? The easy answer is that God's your father. But it's a lot more involved than that. John's not talking about a physical father. You see, there are problems when we start equating God, our father in heaven, with our earthly father because our relationships with our earthly father are not always great. Sometimes they're fantastic. There's nothing wrong with that. But we know that our earthly father has flaws. My kids know that I have flaws. Prone to remind me of them from time to time. <laughs> okay? But, but our heavenly father has no flaws. So, born of God means that we have a heavenly father, an eternal father, one who has regenerated a believer, one who has, is, is sanctifying him or her, one who is motivating, one who is counseling, one who is comforting in, in a way that not only is new, but is absolutely, totally supernatural. There are supernatural things happening in us if we're born of God. The father has given a new life. He's given us a new spirit. And he's transformed those who believe in him into new creatures. Now, we're in process in all those things. Transformation is not complete. But because of what Christ did on the cross, God sees that as a completed work. We are born of God, sons of God, and he is our eternal father. The result of all this spiritual rebirth is love. It's love. Second half of the first verse. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. A part of a believer's new life is an affinity for other believers. Now, we need to take this into context. We need to understand our definition of love. So it is a godly love for other believers. It's not some warm, fuzzy tingle in the tummy. It's not that my gosh, I daydream about you all day long type of love, but it is a compassionate drawing to other believers, a recognition that we have some commonality with them, a concern for their welfare, a concern for their health, a godly, holy love for them. And if you stop to think about it, it's only natural that if we love the father, that we would love the children of the Father as well. Isn't that something we experience in real life? When we have a, a deep and abiding relationship with, with another mother, another father, another couple, we automatically love their children. We love the parents. We have natural affection for their children. That's not something that we have to work up. We don't have to generate this. It comes from believing in Jesus Christ. And we all kind of know what this is like. I, I met somebody a couple weeks ago at Panera. And they said hello, and I said hello, and said, how are you? I'm going, oh, fine. And, and, you know, about 30 seconds into that conversation, I'm saying to myself, I'll bet this person's a believer. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? And there's something about him. And, and so finally, 
uh, they looked at me and said, so, um, do you go to church? I said, I do. Do you go to church? Yes, I do. And we started talking about the churches we went to and everything. So, what we're talking about is, is that level of love. Uh, you, you, you may have had a similar experience. Run into something that somebody, there's just something about them. You can't explain it. It's not tangible. It's just there. You have a certain affinity for them. You want to like them. And that is the love of God flowing through you. That's the Holy Spirit witnessing to the Holy Spirit in them, a drawing of of you to God's body, to his children. And this is what John's describing here. And in the middle of that, he kind of startles us. And and just to prove that it's not some kind of warm, fuzzy feeling, he says in verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now, I talk to you about love and commandments. They show up a bunch of times in this letter, don't they? John says that our love for God's children will be the result of our love for God and our desire to be obedient to him. Now, this goes back to the idea that love is a commandment. Remember, it's not a suggestion. It's not something we need to try out. It's a commandment, one that we have to consciously work on, one that we found out in chapter 3 that we have to practice. And indeed, John follows that up with verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Our obedience to God is a demonstration of our love for him. See, this is the danger of the false teachers that John is opposing in this letter. And it's the same danger that we face in the church today. Remember, those teachers in John's time were downplaying sin, telling folks that holy living wasn't the goal, but the purpose of the Christian life was to have this special knowledge of who Jesus Christ was. Knowledge that went way above and beyond what we see in the Bible. And likewise today, there are teachers in the church that teach that we don't really sin, that what's more important is knowing who we are in Christ, knowing what our relationship with them is, not knowing who Christ is. There are teachers that teach that our relationship with God is about us having power, us having authority, us having position. All that's true. We do have power. We do have authority. We do have position. But that's not the goal. There are even some people that teach that the law is not meant for us, that the commandments only apply to nonbelievers. Thank you. To those teachers back then, and to those that are teaching this garbage today, obedience is a bad word. They speak of freedom. They speak of grace. They speak of a loving father. All that's true. We are free. We are the recipients of grace. We do have a loving father. But nobody wants to talk about obedience. Nobody wants to talk about wrath. Those words aren't part of a lot of folks' doctrine today. And it all has an undertone. If you stop to think about it, it all is undergirded by a life and salvation that's about you. It's about you. It's not about God. It's about you. 
All the benefits of being saved was none of the commitments of leading a holy life. I got to tell you something. I've talked to some of these people. They struggle with 1 John. And I've heard some really strange teaching about it. They struggle with the clear commandment to love. And if we know our scriptures, we know this is true. God commands us to love. But because this does not come naturally to so many of us, he sent us a helper. He sent us a helper to make it easier to do what God tells us to do. And John makes that clear when he says, and his commandments are not burdensome. Wow. God's commandments are not a chore. They're not a drag. They're not aimless, senseless, blind obedience. I've had friends that I've witnessed to that come and say, oh, you've got blind faith. Or one of my favorites is, oh, your faith is a crutch. My response is always, well, a man with a crutch at least knows he needs help. This is the type of obedience that rises up out of a heart that loves God and not only wants to serve him, but wants to please him. Somebody told me, oh, we don't have to please God. I said, but that's what scripture says. What do we do with that? That's not for us. God is graciously giving us his spirit to help us do exactly what he has called us to do. And when we begin to do that, we begin to live a life in victory. Now, I like this, okay, because I've been told how victorious I am. Yeah, oh, you lead the victorious life. And sometimes I haven't felt very victorious. Have you ever been in that situation? <laughs> what happens, you know, am I, do I not have enough faith? But, but well, well, we live a life in victory. And it says so in verse 4, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Let me tell you what this means. Our faith, our belief in Jesus Christ, makes us overcomers. Amen, right? We like that. Overcomers of what? The world. Well, what does John mean by the world? Well, as we take it in the context of the letter that he's writing here, the letter's about errant teaching. And what he's saying is believers become overcomers of anything that is untrue, anything in the world that opposes God, his word, and his attributes. This is not about becoming successful. It's not about being happy all the time, nor is it a guarantee that there will be no pain and suffering in our lives. This is important. So John repeats himself in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Who's going to do this? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. No, this is protection against bad teaching. It's, 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 It's protection that leads us to the knowledge of the truth. And our belief in Jesus Christ is the beginning of that knowledge. So the first test that we have is simple. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer, that he is the Messiah, that he died for your sins? And if so, everything else that we've been talking about for the first 15 minutes goes along with it. All the benefits, all the blessings that go with Christ, 
They are in you. And how do you know that? It's not a warm feeling. We know it because it's what the word of God says. And that word, brothers and sisters, is not John's opinion. It's the inspired word of God, authored by the Holy Spirit, using John and all of John's personality to bring it to us. So let's look at test number two. Believing that Christ is the Son of God, this is part one of that, starting with verse six. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Here's our second test. Once again, John is confronting the teaching of those who are dividing the church. It has to be taken in context. True believers believe that Jesus was the incarnation, that he came in the flesh, that he came by water and blood. Now, a little bit of context here. The Jews believed that the body was made up of two elements. Guess what they were? Water and blood. You guys are sharp. So in one sense, John is saying the word of God says Jesus had human form. That's not what the false teachers are saying. They're saying that he's only divine, that he's a spirit. There's a deeper meaning here as well. And, and to know that, to understand that, you have to understand the, the biblical arc, the biblical narrative. And it makes the same point. But water and blood can also refer to the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he was baptized in water and the end of his ministry when he shed his blood. Either way, and perhaps both, John asserts that Jesus Christ had an earthly body, born as a human being, and died under incredible torture. And if you stop to think about it, that should have made sense in the first century. It should make sense today. If Jesus was just a spirit, if Jesus had no human form, then the suffering on the cross would mean nothing. You can't torture a spirit the way they tortured Jesus' body. The cross proves that Jesus had what we call a corporeal body, a real body. And then in verse 7, John says, For there are three that testify, verse 8, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. John says we get all this information from three sources. The spirit, the spirit of God testifies that Jesus, it's right here in this word. Says that he was the son of God. The water and the blood testify that he was flesh and blood human being. Now, I don't want to get too technical here, but this is the basis for a doctrine that we call the, what do we call it? The hypostatic union. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Just a moment to explain this. He is both of them all the time. He's not facing between one and the other. He's never less of one or the other. He's not alternating. There was no, he didn't start out as a man and then morphed into God. Those are all those teachings that are out there about Jesus Christ. From the moment that his human body was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was fully, completely human and fully, completely God. He was a human being who was a son of God and was God himself. Wow. That's the second test. You believe that? Now, maybe, maybe you struggle with the implications of all that. Maybe you have a hard time wrapping your head around it. And just maybe 
We're not meant to understand it all completely. I mean, there's a mystery and majesty to God that's hard for us to comprehend, amen? But the question is, do you believe it? You should. Why? It's what the Word says. Maybe it doesn't explain the whole thing, but it tells us that. We accept it in faith. So, so there's, there's our first two tests. Believing we're born again. It's not a matter of how much faith we have. It's not a matter of how sincere we are about this. It's a simple question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah who died to give you new life? Test number two. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God, part one. We have the Word of God inspired by the Spirit of God to tell us Jesus was the Son of God and a man. And it had to be that way. Do you understand that it had to be that way? Do you understand why this is so hard for us to understand? Because if he wasn't God, he had no authority to forgive sin. And if he wasn't man, he wasn't suitable to hang in our place on the cross. He had to be God. He had to be man. He had to be both completely, not, not a phase, not a mode, not a, he was and then he wasn't and he is and, and he isn't and so on and so forth. It all had to happen supernaturally, supernaturally. <laughs> I get excited, I'm sorry. <laughs> Miraculously, mysteriously. And this shouldn't confuse us I love thinking about it. I don't know that I'll ever figure it out. Maybe someday in glory we'll all get together and go, oh, yeah, that's what he was talking about. But it ain't today, amen? What it should do is drive us to our knees and go, the glory of God. The glory of God is beyond my comprehension. It's beyond my understanding, but I believe <laughs> because you tell me to. So are there tests that, can determine our eternal destiny? Can I take them on social media? You know, the questions are pretty easy. We just heard two of them. Next week, we'll hear two more. But here's the beauty. It's an easy test. And it's open book. Amen? <laughs> People are always telling me, we don't have faith in a book. That's just pages in a cover. I said, you're right, you wouldn't even know that if you hadn't read the book. I mean, we don't know anything about Jesus Christ and God's plan of redemption and a revelation of his glory to his creation through our redemption and our regeneration until we pick up our Bibles and read it. We can't make this stuff up. Who makes up the hypostatic union? You know, this is just God's self-revelation to us. And the question is, do we believe it so if you've answered yes to both of these tests i think you're halfway to eternity <laughs> and god willing we'll go the rest of the way next week amen <laughs> yeah. 